¿Estás listo para convertir tus mejores ideas en un negocio en línea exitoso? Te presentamos Shopify. Tal vez no lo sabías, pero nuestro podcast More Than Mummies es un negocio. Y lo comenzamos, por supuesto, para desahogarnos y hablar sobre la maternidad, no para convertirnos en expertas de ventas y del e-commerce. Así que sí, necesitábamos ayuda para vender nuestro merch y poner en marcha nuestra tienda. Por eso estamos tan contentas de usar Shopify. Regístrate con tan solo un dólar por mes en shopify.com barra sonoro, todo en minúsculas. Ve a shopify.com barra sonoro para llevar tu negocio al siguiente nivel. Shopify.com barra sonoro. The world has existed for 45 million centuries, but this is really the first century when one species, the human species, can determine the planet's fate. We use more resources and we are having a heavy footprint which is affecting the biosphere and affecting the climate. Consumption rates, meaning consumption rates of water, fuel and other resources, metals, in the developed world, on the average about 32 times those in the poorest countries. And that means that one American citizen has the impact of the world of 32 Kenyans. It's becoming increasingly impossible to have a stable world with big differences in standards of living around the world. And the only stable outcome is going to be a world with much more equal standards of living around it. Welcome to the Global Goalscast, the podcast that explores how to change the world. That world of ours, particularly the rich world, is consuming more than our planet can sustain. Edie, our listeners already know as well as we do that we are burning, eating and tossing away so much that both the air and the seas will be ruined if we do not make changes. They also know that while there is some action going on, we are not moving fast enough. Yes, so what we're going to show you today are two different ways we can approach the problem from two pretty stellar thinkers, Jared Diamond and Martin Rees. Plus, we're going to share with you a sustainable energy solution that already serves a million people in Africa and is scalable right now to billions of people all around the world. But first, this message from the sponsors who make this a sustainable podcast. This episode is sponsored by MasterCard. And our thanks to CBS News Digital and to Harman, the official sound of Global Goalscast. Welcome back. I'm Edie Lush. And I am Claudia Romo Edelman. Very lucky to be sharing the same actually physical place it's to crazy. do this recording. I know. It's quite special. Here we are in Cannes at the Cannes Lion Festival. At six o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Actually in a very little room <laughs> that is not sound protected like our studios. So full we of apologize for that. Saying we're strong like Superman and Julie <laughs> from the, <laughs> the girls' lounge. But what a treat to be here with it you. It is great. So we're going to have a great episode today because we're going to be talking about how the end of the century may feel like a long way off, but actually it is within the lifetime of the people alive today. Our kids, Edie, will be in their 90s by the turn of the century. Ugh. Oh, it's crazy to imagine that our kids will be that old. I know, with wrinkles. <laughs> so one of the questions we will ask is how can we learn to think long term or at least longer term? to protect the world of the day after tomorrow, 
the one our children and grandchildren will live in. And I think, Cody, that you will be a cool granny. Like, totally. You can picture it, right? Like the bikinis, the motorcycle, the boots. (laughs) The question really is, what kind of a world will we be living? The motivation behind this episode is Sustainable Development Goal number 12, Responsible Production and Consumption. We hardly hear about this goal. And it might not sound very dramatic, like ending poverty or educating everyone, but actually it is as dramatic. And like every other goal, it is connected to so many other goals, climate change, sustainable cities, life in the sea. We want to understand the problem, and we want to take a stab on how to address it. So I sought out Jared Diamond. He's a professor at my alma mater, UCLA. Go Bruins, and a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of books on why civilizations succeed and fail. His new book, Upheaval, looks at our modern world. I kicked off by asking him about the world's population growth. The world's human population is a subject that was at the forefront 30, 40 years ago, when many people said, it's the biggest problem for the world. Since then, we've learned, no, it's not the biggest problem for the world. What counts is not the raw number of people. What counts is their total consumption rate, because there's enormous variation between people's consumption rates in different parts of the world. Consumption rates, meaning consumption rates of water, fuel, and other resources, metals, in the developed world, on the average, about 32 times those in the poorest countries. And that means that one... American citizen has the impact of the world of 32 Kenyans. I mentioned specifically Kenyans because there are many Americans who feel indignant and concerned about the growing population of Africa. And yes, it's a tragedy for Africa, but as far as the impact on the world is concerned, 50 million Kenyans are equivalent to 1.7 million Americans Kenya is trivial for its impact on the world. That's why I say that what counts is consumption rates rather than population itself. Climate change is often equated... Climate change is arguably the worst effect of overconsumption. We're burning way more fossil fuel than the atmosphere can hold safely. But there are those who say technology will save us from having to cut consumption by engineering the damage back out of the atmosphere. Diamond disagrees. There were proposed geoengineering solutions of of scattering iron particles in the ocean or shooting things into the atmosphere, and calculations are made that they ought to produce such and such an effect, and behold, they do have that effect in the laboratory. The problem is that how a manipulation works in the laboratory is not necessarily a good predictor of how it will work up in the atmosphere. And the prime example of that is chlorofluorocarbon gases. In the laboratory, CFCs are absolutely benign. It turned out something unpredictable. The CFCs released into the atmosphere destroy the ozone layer, which protects us against ultraviolet light, and it's a really serious effect. Mm. Um, It took about 20 years to establish it. The chemical industry kicked and screamed and said, no, CFCs are innocent. It turned out they were not as innocent, but it took 20 years to convince people. And I will give you one more example, because today it seems so ridiculous. One of my teachers at university, he was sufficiently old that he was alive in the first decade of the 1900s when automobiles were replacing horses 
on the streets of New York and Boston. And as automobiles began to replace horses, people were thrilled because horses deposit manure and the clackety-clack of their hooves on the street is noisy. And so when automobiles came in, people said, thank God, with automobiles, our cities are now going to be clean and quiet. Ha, ha. Unexpected side effects of automobiles. Let me read you a quotation from your book. So does this mean that climate change is unstoppable? No, of course not. Climate change is being caused overwhelmingly by human activities. So all we have to do in order to reduce climate change is to reduce those human activities. That means burning less fossil fuel, getting more energy from renewable sources such as wind, solar, and nuclear. So it sounds easy, right? The principle is easy. The only difficulty is in persuading people to do it. Mm. That's to say, persuading people to burn less fossil fuel. And that requires two things, less energy consumption overall, and more of that energy coming from non-fossil fuel sources. So it really is very simple. And there are people who are inclined to do it now. Uh, We have to get more people inclined to do it. Government action can help by making it illegal to do various things. For example, my understanding is that big cars like Humvees with low gas mileage, like six miles per gallon, in the United States may incur lower automobile taxes. They can be classified as farm vehicles or or other things, which means that, that it's cheaper to buy a Humvee than to buy a Prius. Whereas in Europe, big vehicles are tax equal to the cost of the car itself. Mm. That's to say, if you choose to buy a Humvee, that's your privilege, but you will pay double the market price of the Humvee to drive a Humvee. Uh, That is a way to discourage people from buying gas-guzzling vehicles. In in short, a combination of government action and personal decisions can reduce burning of fossil fuels. So the other issue is, of course, the apparently low cost of fossil fuels. So how do we include those indirect costs of a liter of fossil fuels or a gallon of gasoline? A simple way would be to include in the price of fossil fuels the damage costs that the fossil fuels incur. If, for example, a farmer chooses to spread oil over his fields for some reason and the oil leaks to a neighbor's fields and the neighbor sues the first farmer, the neighbor will win the lawsuit and will make the first farmer pay for the damage done to the fields of the second farmer. Fossil fuels are doing that. They're producing costs for the entire world. But when you buy your gasoline in California for $4.23 a gallon in Los Angeles now, yes, the gas costs $4.23 a gallon, but it causes $35 per gallon of damage to the whole world. And that $35 ought to be included. If you want to drive a car and burn gas and have your Humvee, by all means do so. But you should have to pay the $35 for the damage that you're causing. What do you say about the indirect costs of renewables? So people who don't like solar farms because of the impact that it has on the desert tortoise, for example, in California, or birds killed by windmills. What about the indirect costs there? 
Yes, renewables do have indirect costs which need to be taken into account. The solar fields in the deserts of California, they do remove habitat for desert tortoises, and therefore it would be appropriate for solar farms also to set aside $250,000 per square mile of solar farm in order to mitigate the damage to the um, desert tortoises. And as for windmills, yes, windmills do kill migrant birds and bats. Last estimate I saw was that windmills kill something like 45,000 birds per year in the United States. Well, an outdoor cat, it turns out, kills 300 birds per year, and therefore the windmills of the United States are the equivalent of, what, 135 cats. Therefore, to mitigate windmills, you can mitigate windmills if you eliminated 135 cats. Yes, we should do that, but that's pretty cheap compared to the cost of <laughs> fossil fuels. I would, I would rather eliminate 135 cats. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe put a lot of bells around them. So we're in Europe here, and there is a strange dichotomy between Europe and the United States. Americans have a higher rate of energy consumption, which is twice Europe's. And that's despite Europeans enjoying a higher standard of living than Americans. It is true that Americans have roughly double the rate of fuel consumption of Europeans. Part of the reason, of course, is that the distances in the United States are larger and your jet plane burns more fuel if you fly from Boston to Los Angeles than if you fly from London to Manchester. That's part of the reason. The other reason is that Americans are very wasteful of energy, um, particularly with respect to our automobiles, and we do not make Americans pay for the privilege of driving their Humvees and their other gas-guzzling automobiles. Until recently, the existence of poor people elsewhere in the world didn't constitute a threat to the overindulgent, overconsumptive lifestyles of those who lived in the United States, but that has changed. Those poor people out there in the past, 60 years ago, didn't pose a threat to Americans because, number one, they didn't have television and cell phones and they didn't know about the wonderful, luxurious lifestyle in the United States firsthand. And secondly, with the methods of travel, the first time I came to Europe in 1950, I came by ship. Nowadays, one would never dream of coming by ship to Europe. Um, you fly, fly by airplane. People move much more easily around the world. And that means, among other things, that they can emigrate and immigrate much more easily. So there's much more immigration pressure. It's understandable that people from the developing world want to move because they have a much less satisfactory lifestyle and they know that their government is not going to solve their lifestyle within their lifetime or within the lifetime of their children. So, of course, they want to migrate. But migrating also means increasing the impact of the world. Or what it means is that the, a stable world requires a more equal world. It's becoming increasingly impossible to have a stable world with big differences in standards of livings around the world. And the only stable outcome is going to be a world with much more equal standards of living around it. The world does have a track record of solving really thorny problems. And some of those problems include delineating overlapping economic zones along the coast in shallow water. Wherever you get two countries that are adjacent to each other with seacoasts, they are likely to have overlapping coastal economic zones. And it is really thorny to decide how to 
delineate the economic zones of adjacent countries. Nevertheless, negotiations were carried out all around the world with the result that there is agreement on economic zones between every neighboring country that has a seacoast. That was a really difficult problem, but the negotiations succeeded. Another negotiation that succeeded um, was establishing a framework for mining minerals from the seabed on the floor of the sea are these mineral nodules, which essentially are pure minerals. The technology was available for mining the mineral nodules on the ocean bottom decades ago, but there wasn't a legal framework, meaning that if you sent out, one country sent out a ship to suck up minerals here, another country could send out a ship 200 feet away and suck up those same minerals. Therefore, there was not, nobody wanted to invest in the economics of, of harvesting minerals from the ocean floor. But now, in the last few decades, there is a legal framework. It was, again, thorny to negotiate. One of the things that made it difficult to negotiate is that all of those landlocked countries, like Zambia and Mongolia and Bolivia and Laos, were screaming, this does us no good. Those countries that have seacoasts, they're the ones that can suck up the minerals, and there's no way we can suck them up. So, of course, we're not going to agree to a plan that allows those countries with the seacoast to suck up the minerals. There were negotiations, and the result of the negotiations, which took a decade or a couple of decades, is that the landlocked countries like Bolivia and Zambia, they get 15% of the royalties that are produced by the coastal countries. It was a difficult negotiation. Those are examples of the world resolving by negotiation difficult problems of competition between nations. Since we solved those difficult problems, that gives some grounds for optimism that we could also solve climate change and non-sustainable resource use. One can object, well, climate change is more difficult than those problems that we've solved. It's more difficult than the mineral nodules on the ocean floor. And yes, it's probably true that climate change is more difficult, but the fact is that there's a framework, and the framework has succeeded in many difficult cases. We also live in a world in which corporations, companies, some of them have much larger GDPs if they were to be a country. Zambia, you mentioned, is in terms of its GDP is actually much lower than a lot of the companies listed on the S&P 500 or the, the FTSE 100. So what role do you see that corporations, that business can play in this world? 20 years ago, I would have answered, the role that business plays in the world is evil because Zambia is not only smaller than Coca-Cola and Chevron, but Zambia doesn't do evil to the rest of the world, whereas Coca-Cola and Chevron and Walmart do do evil to the rest of the world. They do no good, and they're environmentally damaging, and they're among the worst effects on the environment today. That was what I would have said 20 years ago. And there was some justice to it. What has changed since then is, that first, Jared has learned. I'm, I'm on the board, board of directors of World Wildlife Fund US, and I've been on the board of directors of Conservation International. On the boards of these big environmental organizations are CEOs and leaders of Coca-Cola. The head of the board of trustees of World Wildlife Fund US was the CEO of Coca-Cola. And on the board of Conservation International is um, Rob Walton, son of Sam Walton, head of Walmart. Um, and Unilever has also been a big player with World Wildlife Fund. Um, I've discovered um, a couple of things. One, that they found it in their interest to be environmentally clean. 
That's not to say that big corporations are environmentally clean across the board. Yes, they're still doing really, some really bad things. But also, um, some big corporations are among the most powerful forces for environmental good in the world today. And that's something that lots of radical environmentalists don't want to hear about. I can discuss anything with my wife, but not Walmart. (laughs) (laughs) So it seems that globalization, which is sort of how you end that book, is both a blessing and a curse. And I wonder how you come down on it when you think, how is this going to play out? Maybe not for you and me, but for our descendants. I'm laughing because when you said globalization is both a blessing and a curse, that applies to so many things. Marriage is a blessing and a curse. Children are a (laughs) blessing and a curse. How can we maximize the benefits of globalization while minimizing the damage? Globalization means that Ideas and technologies do spread rapidly around the world. That includes good constructive technologies as well as bad technologies spreading around the world. Globalization means that that countries today no longer have the option of collapsing one by one. Quite a few of the most powerful societies of the past collapsed due to environmental damage. They were autosufficient. They depended largely on their own resources. And so when the classic Maya civilization of the Yucatan, the most advanced civilization in the New World before Columbus, collapsed, nobody knew about it in Europe and probably nobody knew about it in the Valley of Mexico either. Today, societies can't collapse one by one because they are supported by other societies. That's an advantage of globalization. Drawbacks of globalization are ones we've talked about, namely the spread of diseases, around the world and the unstoppable movements of of people, the challenge for us is to reduce the bad effects of globalization and to increase the good effects, just as the challenge for any couple is to increase the benefits of a marriage and to reduce the disadvantages. (laughs) Thank you very much. Professor Diamond, I really appreciate your time. You are welcome. It was fascinating hearing Jared Diamond describe his conversion from thinking corporations were a lot of the problem to believing corporations are part of the solution. Just after I talked to him, the Financial Times came out with an interesting chart that showed that only 15% of the 500 biggest businesses in the world are on course to reduce their carbon consumption enough to be in line with the Paris Accords. So a lot of work still to be done. And one place we always draw inspiration from is you. You, our dear listeners. Edie, did you hear about our listener in Pittsburgh, Jason Halmark? I did. What a courageous man. Oh, my God. He was inspired by our episodes last season in which Robert Swan and his son made a challenging trek to the South Pole relying only on sustainable energy. But Hallmark had a challenge of his own. He was diagnosed last year with multiple sclerosis. But he didn't let that stop him. Three days after the diagnosis, he applied to a program he heard about here at the Global Goals Cast. It's called Leadership on the Edge, and he is spending 10 days in June this year in the program to witness climate change in the Arctic and bringing the lessons home to Pittsburgh. I have chills. Jason, we hope you're having a great trip. Drop us a line. We're very proud of you for taking action. And in a moment, we will hear from another big thinker about the future, Lord Martin Rees, head of the Center for Existential Risks, Astronomer Royal of the United Kingdom. 
and from an entrepreneur who has designed solar-powered electric grids so that Africa can grow without adding to the carbon problem. But first, another great executive from our sponsor, MasterCard. With the Girls for Tech program that actually MasterCard launched in 2014, again, we're going to create a new set of actors in the technology space that heretofore just haven't been there. Unless we make sure that women and girls have access to the learning, to the tools, to the education that's required to not only succeed in this new economy, but actually shape the new economy, we won't realize the potential of what's possible. So Girls for Tech is about creating future problem solvers. That's how we see girls in the future and right now. So we have to make sure that the STEM principles are shared equally. And we have a goal, actually, to reach 200,000 girls by 2020. We're halfway there in 25 countries. Because we're a global company with network all over the world, we're in 210 markets, when you're a company like MasterCard who has reach everywhere, ubiquitous, you have an opportunity to reach everyone everywhere. That's Shamina Singh from MasterCard. Later on, we'll hear from Tara Nathan on how MasterCard used its fintech skills to deliver humanitarian aid. But now we go from UCLA to Cambridge. We do not always spend so much time in the ivory tower, lady. I, no, I couldn't. Come on. I couldn't resist an interview with Martin Rees because I have wanted to interview him for ages. My only regret is that I couldn't find a way to get in his views on black holes or whether we should send people into space or leave it to robots. A theme of my book on the future is that the world has existed for 45 million centuries. But this is really the first century when one species, the human species, can determine the planet's fate. And this is for two reasons. One is that uh, there are more of us, we're more empowered by technology, we use more resources, and we are having a heavy footprint which is affecting the biosphere and affecting the climate. Sir Martin talks about being deep in the Anthropocene, the moment we're in right now, when one species, the human race, is so empowered and dominant that it has the planet's future in its hands. I asked him if that means we're creating measurable physical changes to Earth that are on a geological timescale. Well, a shortened geological timescale, really, and uh, one of the points is that the biosphere and the climate have been changing on very slow timescales, whereas they're now changing on a human timescale of uh, less than a century, which is, of course, very, very much faster. And that's why species can't adapt to climate change and uh, we're leading to mass extinctions. And sadly, we are risking destroying the book of life before we've read it if we have mass extinctions. Jared Diamond spoke about internalizing the externality or making the cost of a car include its impact on the environment. Martin Rees spoke about taking another concept, the discount rate, commonly used in finance to determine what is worth spending now to achieve some value in the future, and what happens when you apply that approach to our impact on the environment. Well, everyone values immediate benefits rather than deferred benefits. And of course, this is the standard discount rate that's used in all economic decision-making, how much more you value having something now compared to one year or 10 years or 50 years in the future. And of course, uh, this discount rate, which is used by banks and everyone else, is determined by 
concatenation of economic factors. But the point I would like to emphasize is that the discount rate which is appropriate in making many economic decisions is not the one which is appropriate when we are thinking about the future of generations as yet unborn. And uh, when we think about them, we've got to not value less what happens at the end of a century than now. We've got to be prepared to spend money now in order to alleviate any burdens that people at the end of a century will have. And I think the psychological reason for this is that we do care about the life chances of babies born today who will be alive in the 22nd century. And it would be shameful if the legacy that we left for future generations was a depleted and more dangerous world. Part of the problem is that making decisions for those who will live in 2100 requires making real sacrifices today. I mean, spending sacrifices. Lowering investment rates, lowering consumption, a lower discount rate. But we have done it before. I asked Sir Martin if it's fair to say that climate change isn't a scientific challenge anymore because we actually know the science. We know enough science to know there's a substantial risk of something really bad by the end of a century, and that's why we need to take precautions to remove that risk. The most important thing we could do to uh, reduce the risk of long-term climate change would be to accelerate research and development into all forms of clean energy. The faster the research is done, the quicker advance will be made and the costs will come down. And if you think of India, where they now depend on energy from smoky stoves, burning wood and dung. They need more energy. They need a grid of some kind. And if we can accelerate the development of clean energy, so it's cheap, then they will leapfrog directly to clean energy and not build coal-fired power stations. It's what they'll do otherwise. So to accelerate clean energy development is, I think, an important global goal. And indeed, it would be hard to think of a more inspirational challenge for young scientists and engineers than to develop clean energy quickly for the whole world. There obviously needs to be commitment from governments and more regulation and more encouragement for business to invest in these areas as well as for universities to invest in research. But how do you make that happen? Well, obviously the governments can provide the right incentives and uh, a carbon tax, particularly a fiscally neutral carbon tax, where the money raised in the tax is used to lower other taxes. That's a very attractive idea. But the important requirement is to make the public care so that the politicians feel they can take these long-term decisions and prioritize the long-term without losing votes. And that's the important thing which we are lacking. So we need more charismatic individuals who can actually persuade the public that we need to do this and it'll be good in the long run. I think when we look back through history, we know that most major changes were initiated by a few key figures and then became mass movements. And then the politicians took them up and took action. That's true of slavery. It's true of uh, civil rights. It's true of gay rights, and we hope it will become true of the environment. But as apart from that, I think uh, we do have to incentivize the kind of behavior which is helpful environmentally by uh, appropriate taxes and regulations. 
So it's always part of each episode to present someone who's out there trying to solve the problems we describe. Today, that person is Xavier Helgeson, an entrepreneur who is doing one of the things Martin Rees called for, accelerating clean energy in poorer countries. The average African only uses one or two percent of the power of the average American. And the thinking was that if people could get started with clean energy and use that as their primary source of power, and that adding more clean energy was the cheapest and most reliable way to get more power, then people would keep using it and the uh, electrical system would grow up in a distributed manner. People know what electricity is. People know electricity is everywhere. The question for them is, how do I get it in my house and can I afford it? And if I get a solar power system, will it work and will it keep working? People focus on the solar panel, but really the essence of an off-grid solar power system is the smart battery. And that battery needs to last for years. So the reason people typically choose our systems is because either they have no electric grid connection or that uh, electric grid connection is unreliable or, or unstable. Self-sufficiency is very, very important to people in these environments because you never know what uh, tomorrow will bring. I asked Xavier how it works and why it's affordable. We design the capacity based on your needs in a particular segment. So one common example might be a solar power system where you could power your lights and a TV and a fan, but couldn't power an air conditioner or a fridge. To an American, that might be unacceptable, but to a middle-class African or Indian household, that could be exactly what they need to solve their electrical problem. And designing for the specific use allows you to hit cost targets that allow you to be as affordable as $10 a month. So one other aspect we focus on is integrating the financing into the hardware. Uh, so it works like a prepaid mobile phone where people pay in small increments. And when they make a payment via their mobile phone, the solar power system in their home unlocks and produces power. And this allows us to extend financing at low rates even to rural African customers who don't have traditional credit. What we don't always realize when we have discussions about consumption or overconsumption, we don't always talk about overconsumption of what, and is that resource finite or, or not finite? So electricity is not really finite. We can produce many, many multiples of what we consume, even if we were all uh, huge energy gluttons because there's lots of ways to produce power. And the good news today is that a solar panel on a rooftop is uh, the cheapest source of electricity for the vast majority of people in the world. So the trick then becomes an integration problem. How do we integrate that solar electricity, which happens at random times during the day when the sun shines, to serve a billion people with reliable power and allow people to build networks of self-generated power and this becomes very, very powerful because then communities of any scale, whether it's just myself and my neighbor, whether it's my town, they can electrify in a way uh, that's entirely under their control. Most people aspire to own a home rather than rent, but almost everyone in the world rents their electricity now. I can imagine quite a few people would prefer to own that either uh, themselves or cooperatively with other members of their community. Edie, one image sticks to my mind. 
like from all of the episodes, everything that we heard, the problem is not population growth. It is how much we consume. I mean, if we all consume like Kenyans, the planet will be okay. But we all consume like Americans, then the world is going to be toast. Mm. Yet, Kenyans, understandably, want to improve their lives, and that means consuming more. So I think that both Martin Rees and Diamond made the point that we need to find some middle ground. Some poorer countries will increase consumption, but that means that even more pressure should be put into the richer countries to reduce their levels of consumption. But that was mind-blowing for mm. me. It's not about the population growth. Mm, it's exactly. about consumption. Yeah. Crazy. So that means that everybody needs to make changes, and that includes big corporations like oil companies. I was amazed to see the BP report recently, the new chair of BP, Helga Lund, saying that the world can't continue along its current path and that a faster transition will require a huge re-engineering of the energy system that's going to present a significant challenge for the world's biggest oil and gas companies. And did you see just yesterday a collection of those big oil and gas companies were together with the Pope in the Vatican oh, signing an agreement saying that they were going to adhere to the Paris Agreement. So Martin Rees had talked to me about how the world needs more of these big personalities like the Pope like David Attenborough, using their influence to have people and companies make changes. So I was pretty excited to see that. Yeah, and I've seen it here. I mean, like people are moving away from depending on governments only, since leadership is not that clear anymore. And so people and influencers, such as, you know, like companies, CEOs, people that they trust, like David Attenborough, are, are, mm. are the ones that are taking going to take the stage. And we've seen insurance companies like Munich Re saying we have to recognize climate risk much more than we do, which of course would increase the justification for us paying now to protect us later. Back to Martin Rees's point. The UN is planning a summit on this topic in September. Mm. As a fact, the Secretary General is up onto his neck and this. Well, actually, he was <laughs> in the Pacific Ocean up to his knees for a cover photo for Time magazine just to dramatize the plight of Pacific Island nations that are drowning, like the ones that we've spoken to before, like Palau. Like Palau. Or I like just wonder, Edie, what do you think of the impact that documentaries have had on the consumption of fast food, for example? Do you remember Supersized Me I or do. Cowspiracy? Yeah. Maybe there's a need to have more documentaries on plastic, carbon, fresh water, aquifers, and all about the cycle of consumption. I still don't have a sense that we cracked the zeitgeist. I agree. I mean, I, I have seen just in the tube in the last week, more and more ads for different products from Unilever, for example, who I know is promising to be 100% recyclable, a real cutback on single-use plastics. Mm -hmm. I've seen some incredible new innovation. It, it does need to be taken up a lot faster. And we are here recording from Cannes. We are at the Cannes Advertisement Festival and mm. it yesterday was my first day judging. And How did it go? Well, I saw a lot of publicity like last year on earth, on plastic, on consumption, mm -hmm. on about how companies should 
totally disappear straws, for example, and how that, I think that that's going to become even more sexy in the mm. future moving forward. Even just walking down the crossette, I've seen a lot mm. about equality, about diversity, about inclusion. So it does feel like the words at least are getting out there. And dear listeners, if you know of documentaries that we should be highlighting on those topics, if you know of any activity that we should be highlighting, let us know. <laughs> And on the Global Goals Cast, we always give you three facts that you can take away to look smart in front of your mother-in-law and three actions that you can take. And today, those come from our partner, Apolitical, from Robin Scott. It's such a pleasure to join this important podcast to share three potent facts and three simple actions for driving responsible consumption and production. The first fact is that our current population of 7.7 .7 billion people is expected to grow by a massive 26% by 2050. That's according to the UN's latest population report. Which brings me to fact two. The book Drawdown surprisingly ranks educating girls and family planning as the sixth and seventh most important strategies for reducing climate change. The third fact is that responsible consumption increasingly involves opportunities, not sacrifices. Take Amsterdam's Sharing Economy Initiative, which is building shared services that not only help us reduce waste, but also save us money and bring our communities closer together. And in a world where jobs are increasingly being lost to automation, the International Labour Organization estimates that the green economy could create 24 million jobs by 2030. Now, onto three actions. First, reduce the animal products you consume. Animal agriculture accounts for a whopping 14% or more of global emissions. So go and buy some of those new meat alternatives like Impossible Burgers. This not only reduces your meat consumption, it also incentivizes private investors and governments to put more money into innovation around alternatives to meat. Second, read the book Drawdown, which tells you all the things you can do and shouldn't do and what matters most. It also has some amazing facts, like how you dispose of your refrigerator really, really matters. Third, vote for politicians with policy solutions, such as Jacinda Ardern's well-being budget, which takes a focus off GDP alone. The scale of this challenge requires the scale of policy. So follow Apolitical on Twitter and at apolitical.co for examples of policies that are working around the planet for the planet. Thanks for listening and for caring. And now a little more from our sponsor, MasterCard. What the MasterCard Aid Network was, was a digital wallet that enabled a beneficiary who was sitting in a remote place, whether in Yemen, in a disconnected environment with no mobile phone coverage, with no power, no electricity, the ability to receive digitally their food and their humanitarian benefits. What this does is because they're receiving it digitally, it gives that beneficiary the ability to redeem at a local marketplace, just like you or I would, it enables them to redeem their benefits for fresh fruits and fresh vegetables and to actually make healthy choices for their families. The other side of that really is what it does for the organizations that service and that serve these beneficiaries, like the, the NGOs who we partner with. 
And that is it gives them a more cost-effective way, a more auditable, a more transparent way to provide these benefits. That was Tara Nathan of MasterCard, who sponsored the entire season of Global Goals Cast. We thank them for being with us the entire way. That's it. This is episode and season two of the Global Goals Cast. Thank you. Thank you to all our guests. Thank you to all our listeners. You can find out more on our website, globalgoalscast.org. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast and follow us on social media at Global Goalscast. See you in season three. See you in season three. Sayonara. <laughs> Adios. Adios, amigo. <laughs> Music in this episode was by Neil Hale, Andrew Phillips, Angelica Garcia, Simon James, Katie Crone, and Ashish Pillowal. This episode was made possible with the support of MasterCard, CBS News Digital, and Harmon, the official sound of Global Goalscast. We want to give a special thanks to our interns for the summer, Darcy Nelson, Addie Gisby, and Ashley Esquivel. We could not have done this without you. And thank you to Keith Reynolds from Spoke Media for lending us his ear. Are you ready to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no-excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our start up and running. Another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need wherever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro. ¿Estás listo para convertir tus mejores ideas en un negocio en línea exitoso? Te presentamos Shopify. Tal vez no lo sabías, pero nuestro podcast More Than Mammies es un negocio y lo empezamos, por supuesto, para desahogarnos y hablar sobre la maternidad, no para convertirnos en expertas de ventas y del e-commerce. Así que sí, necesitábamos ayuda para vender nuestro merch y poner en marcha nuestra tienda. ¿Y cómo suena con Shopify? Llegó otra venta. Shopify es la plataforma de comercio que está revolucionando millones de negocios en todo el mundo. Ya seas un emprendedor desde tu casa o desde donde sea, Shopify es la única herramienta que necesitas para iniciar, administrar y hacer crecer tu negocio sin dificultades. Con Shopify puedo gestionar pedidos, envíos y pagos desde cualquier lugar, brindándote toda la información y estadísticas de tus ventas al detalle. Regístrate para un periodo de prueba con tan solo un dólar al mes en shopify.com barra sonoro. Todo en minutos. Ve a Shopify.com barra sonoro para llevar tu negocio al siguiente nivel. Shopify.com barra sonoro.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.